Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM, the very best in late-night talk radio. I'm Richard Serrett, sitting in for George Norrie, and tonight, this morning, I'm coming to you live from the home studio in old Thornhill, just north of Toronto. Over the last month, I've had the great pleasure of conversing with some of my rock heroes. John Densmore, drummer for The Doors. Mark Farner, the driving force behind Grand Funk Railroad. And tonight, another rock luminary. Frank Marino is best known as lead guitarist, vocalist, and songwriter for the band Mahogany Rush, which formed in Montreal in the late 1960s. Marino and Mahogany Rush had a string of successful albums on Columbia Records with his trio and spent years performing to packed arenas across the country, sometimes with up-and-coming acts like Judas Priest and ACDC as openers, as well as alongside artists like Aerosmith, Santana, and Ted Nugent at mega festivals like 1978's California Jam 2. Marino is best known for his soaring lead guitar, and he's long been compared to Jimi Hendrix. And while most guitarists would likely kill for that comparison, for Marino, it came with a considerable burden, as I'm sure he'll testify. But truthfully, Frank Marino is incomparable. He's been fusing psychedelic blues, rock, and jazz music on his own terms for over 50 years. He was part of the original psychedelic wave of musicians in the late 1960s, early 70s, and was certainly one of the youngest members of the movement, recording his first album at 16 years old. Zach Wilde, best known as lead guitarist for Ozzy Osbourne, once told Guitar World magazine, Frank is just an amazing combination of feel, taste, musicality, and technique. It's all there and in staggering degrees. Wilde says, I love the way he plays blues. It's like, as opposed to being a Ford Model T of the blues, he's a Formula One race car. And then you throw in the jazz element and it's just wow. The way he can play bebop and jazz type stuff with that much confidence, he's not fooling around. He actually knows what he's doing. Within the, great, or within the guitar community, he's a god. But don't call Frank Marino a god. He thinks the term's ridiculous. He says you can either be a guitar god or you can be a musician. And I always thought of myself as a musician who happened to play guitar. Frank Marino on Bad Trips, Old Ghosts, Artistic Freedom, creating music on his own terms, looking back on more than half a century as an iconic guitar slinger, his love for tinkering and electronics, and what he has in store for the next chapter. Frank Marino, coming up in hours one and two. Coming up in hours three and four, open lines, a Friday night tradition, and as per usual, we're keeping those two hours a politics-free zone. However, I'll gladly entertain your tales of high strangeness, your encounters with strange beings, shadow people, lizard men, flying discs, disembodied voices and mysterious creatures that crawl, climb, swim, slither and fly, time slips, out-of-body experiences, synchronicities, and mysterious strangers. The long and often strange musical odyssey of rock guitarist 
Frank Marino is next. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told. And you are among friends. I'm Richard Serrett, sitting in for George Norrie. And this is Coast to Coast AM. Why don't you stay a while? After playing drums since he was five, Frank Marino started playing guitar around age 13 or 14 while in hospital in Montreal. By the time he was 16, he was given a record deal and allowed unprecedented artistic freedom. He released his first album, Maxum, in 1972 at the tender age of 18. That album was followed by Child of the Novelty in 1974 and Strange Universe in 1975. Those two album covers depict Marino's tortured experiences while on acid, which were relayed to album cover artist Ivan Schwartz. More recently, Frank released a six-hour live recording on CD and DVD live at the Agora Theater. An open or an often repeated myth is that Frank Marino was visited by an apparition of Jimi Hendrix after a bad acid trip, a myth Marino has always disavowed and continues to do so on his personal website. His playing, however, is inspired by Hendrix. On the Gibson website, he's described as carrying Jim's psychedelic torch. And Frank is notable for often performing cover versions of Hendrix's classics, such as All Along the Watchtower. Frank has described Mahogany Rush's sound, his sound, as the Grateful Dead meets jazz. Mahogany Rush played before 300,000 people at California Jam 2 in 1978. He's toured with Aerosmith and Johnny Winter. He's widely considered a guitar player's guitar player. And it's a great pleasure to welcome Frank Marino to Coast to Coast AM. Frank, climb aboard. How are you? How are you, Richard? I'm fine. I'm great. Thank you. How are things in Montreal? Are you getting a a typical Montreal uh, winter? Things are very cold. (laughs) They're very, very cold. We, we We had a snowless December and part of January, and now it hit us. No burst water pipes, I hope. No, not yet. Okay, that's good. You know, I'm just thinking about your, your childhood. And, um, you know, Ringo Starr likes to tell the story of how he he learned to play the drums or decided he was going to be a drummer while he was in hospital. For you, it's kind of the opposite. You were playing the drums at a very young age, and then you went into the into the hospital and picked up the guitar. But let me ask you about drumming. Uh, I understand, like, you wanted to be Buddy Rich. Like, were you an old soul? Like, I can't imagine a five- or a six-year-old deciding, I want to be Buddy Rich. Well, Buddy Rich, guys like Buddy Rich, and, uh, you know, when I was growing up, that's if you heard drummers and you heard Buddy Rich, there was no other drummer you wanted to hear except Buddy Rich. There was Elvin Jones, but I liked Elvin Jones because, you know, it was a, it was that same kind of jazz type of playing, and yeah, I wanted to I wanted to grow up and be a drummer. I wanted to be Buddy Rich, and believe me, when I went to the hospital, if they'd had a set of drums in there, I'd have played the drums all the time. But they're not going to put a set of drums in a hospital, so all they had was a guitar. Can you uh, tell us how you ended up in the hospital at the age of thirteen for an extended period of time? Well, it was the sixties. And, um, you know, I had older brothers and sisters, well, an older brother and older sister, and I was like the sort of mascot of the of the gang. And LSD was being used, and, you know, psychedelic drugs were being used, and I guess I just used too much of them. 
And um, at one point, it just got... Uh, you get to a point on a psychedelic drug, especially if you're, if you're young, uh, where you sort of cross a certain threshold. It's like a kind of a Rubicon. And once you've crossed over, it's not like you can unsee or unfeel or unhear what, what happens to you. And nobody really knew what to do about that. I mean, you could call it a bad trip, but it was more than a bad trip. It was a, it was a complete, you know, psychedelic experience, to quote Timothy Leary. And uh, all I could do was end up in a hospital because I didn't know what to do about it. I mean, it had never happened before. I had done, done those drugs for a while as a young kid. And uh, it just all blew my mind one day. And uh, from the time that I went to the hospital, I never touched another drug again or, or even a drink to this day. When would, we, would you describe it as um, like a psychosis? Did it induce a psychosis? You know, the story of Alice in Wonderland? Yes. Imagine that really happening. Like, that must... more. I mean, it wasn't just like, because um, I had done acid for a while, you know, so most people who do acid, they feel high and they sort of see the walls breathe and, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a light experience. But when I, it's like I crossed over into what you, like you call a psychosis. And I guess it's similar to uh, when they say that schizophrenic people hear voices. Well, that's just one sense. Imagine all the senses doing that to you and creating a whole trip. And those early album covers are really, really are, especially Strange Universe, really are indicative of what the trip was like. And it didn't just end suddenly. It went on for many, many years while I was playing. So in the early days, when I was doing those albums with those covers, I was always trying to express myself uh, with the music that I was doing, trying to express that trip. And, and you I, know, it's I, interesting. And believe me, it wasn't a nice experience. You know, it's interesting because we people tend to romanticize, you know, that that era, and and they, you know, dropping uh, LSD and um, you know the. Um, uh, the, with the Grateful Dead, uh, the electric Kool-Aid acid trip and all of that. Uh, I mean, you, you, the way you're portraying it, it sounded like it, an absolute nightmare. I can't imagine well, uh, a young a young child going through that. Yeah, it was, a, it was an absolute nightmare. Now, it wasn't a nightmare in the beginning. It was, it was what everyone ex- romanticized. <laughs> you know, it was that. Uh, there's an old joke about, you know, what are the deadheads say when the acid wears off? They say, what's that noise? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was romanticized, and it was cool and everything, and everyone was, it's like you see Woodstock, it was very much like that. But in my case, I went that one little silly step further. It might have been because I was only 13, uh, it might have been, who knows why it didn't happen to a lot of people. I know of two other people that it did happen to, and they never recovered. That is tragic. So, um, you know, 
I think it's a dangerous drug. I think all drugs can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing, like anything else. And sure. Once I, once I hit the hospital and came out of the hospital, and I went in and out, in and out for a while. It was like back and forth, back and forth. You know, I'd go in the hospital and said, oh, I don't like being in the hospital. I want to go home. Then I'd come home and say, I better get back to the hospital. It was, it was a really... It was a really awful time, but the guitar was what I held on to. It was like, imagine being, imagine falling off a boat in the middle of the ocean and finding one piece of wood that you could hang on to. Mm-hmm. The guitar yeah. became that for me. And they had an acoustic guitar in the hospital and it became the only thing I would gravitate towards for whatever hour, every hour of the day. And when I had to go home, they wouldn't let me take it. So my mother bought me a guitar and that guitar that she bought me actually ended up becoming the guitar that I did my career with. That's the, uh, the, S- the, uh, the, G- the Gibson, the 61 the Gibson, the yeah. SG. Were you self-taught? I mean, how did you learn to play in hospital? <laughs> I thought I could. <laughs> it's hard to explain. I believed I could. I be- the songs I was thinking of, I was thinking I was writing. They, I wasn't writing them. They were, they were Grateful Dead tunes. They were Doors tunes. They were, they were tunes. You know, they were Jimi Hendrix tunes. They were tunes from that era. And I was thinking, oh, I'm just going to work on my songs. Like I was crazy. But how did you learn, you know, how to play chords and you just figured it out on your own? That just came on, you know, I started with notes. I started with notes and I had always had good rhythm because I was a drummer. Hmm. So timing wasn't a problem. And later on, notes became, you know, oh, these two notes go together and they make a chord. And then much later on after that, when I started to, well, I won't say come down, but I started to be more in the world, then I, then I started looking into what it was that I was playing and asking other people, what is it that I'm playing? And they'd say, well, that's an A and that's a B and that's a G sharp. And I started learning about music. It was a, it was a long process, but it all happened pretty quickly because it started at 13. You know, well, it started, the, I had three experiences like that. And it was the third one that put me in the hospital. And that all started between July 26th of 1968 and September 3rd or 4th of the same year. That's when I ended up going to the hospital. Right. And I, I'm born in November. So I was just turning 14. So I was still 13 years old when it happened to me. And between that point and being in the hospital for most of the early part of 69, um, you know, I was supposed to go to Woodstock and didn't go because I was, I was completely, you know, my mind was blitzed. But, um, between the time that I did the hospital and the time I was 
eventually at 16 going on 17, by that time I made an album. Yeah, this is uh, astounding to me. Uh, yeah, it was, in, no, it really it, wasn't. I look back at it and I, I almost don't know who that person was. How did that happen? Was it Nine Records? Was that the label that came to you and said, here's the keys to the candy store, Frank, go record an album and you can produce it? They tried everything to get me to record. And I kept refusing because it wasn't cool in those days to be part of the, quote, establishment. And the way that they finally talked me into it, because I said no. No, 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 I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I just wanted to stay in the room and play music with my friends. And that's what I did for 12 hours a day. But crowds would come and see us. And so these people saw these huge crowds coming to see us. We'd play outside, we'd play in parks. And so they thought, oh, we can make a buck with this. And... So they said, let's get him to sign a record deal. And uh, I wasn't even of age to do it. I had to have my, eventually when I did finally agree to it, my parents had to sign the papers. And um, it was unusual for someone that young to be making a record, let alone producing it myself, because that's how they got me to do it. They promised that if I would do it, they'd give me whatever equipment I wanted. And that was like a magic word. Sure. Equipment. <laughs> we'll put you in a place called a studio, and it's full of equipment. And I'm like, equipment? Oh, wow. And <laughs> we, won't even, we won't even show up. You do whatever you like. You produce it. That was unheard of. To let I'll a 15, say. 16-year-old kid produce his own record. And the band, Mahogany Rush, uh, I mean, did you have to quickly quickly put together a band, or were were these the people? No, I had, whoever played with me, like the jamming that I was doing, it was always Mahogany Rush. Before, the Mahogany Rush that became Mahogany Rush, who finally did that album, you know, when I was 16, 17. Right. I had played with a lot of guys before that. And it was always known as Mahogany Rush, because Mahogany Rush was the was not a name of a band; it was a name of the of the experience I had while on acid, almost like the Alan Parsons Project. You know, like it was like right. I would say, "I'm having Mahogany Rush." That's what I would tell the doctors. It made no That's... sense to them, but to me, it made a whole lot of sense. You were describing the feeling you had I while you were trying to describe my trip. Yeah, and um, and so whoever played with me was playing mahogany rush music. It was almost a joke <laughs> to people. Right. It wasn't the name of a band. It was the genre you were playing. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's a good way to put it. All right. We're going to uh, take a, a time out here. Frank Marino is with us from Mahogany Rush. We'll uh, continue this conversation of his. Uh, musical odyssey on the other side frank marino is with us from mahogany rush so when you go into the studio and when you went in to record your the debut album maxoom at the age of uh 16 17 years old and then later child of the novelty um my understanding is you 
you didn't have a, any any anything written material written. You just went in there and decided, okay, I'm just we, now we have to I have to create nine songs right off the top of my head. Is that how it worked? That for me, that is the way I did every album. So every time I did a record, whether it was Maxim or Child and with a Strange Universe, Four, World At Them, all the records. And to this day, I go in with nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. And then it's like, I'll tell the guys, take a break for an hour, I'll write a tune. <laughs> oh, wow. I'll write a tune. They'll come in, I'll show them the tune. It's totally fresh. We jam on it. That freshness is there because everyone's jamming on it, and it becomes the song. That's how the songs are done. There's only been two or three instances in my whole career where we did a tune in the studio that we had done, you know, like in a practice or uh, in a jam session earlier. And but but for the most part, it was like, OK, we have an album to do. And, the, the, you know, the page is completely blank. And here it is. And we do the music. By the end of the night, we'd have the music done. And I do the vocals last after everything was put in. How, how would the lyrics come to you? I'd sit and listen to it over and over and over again and say, what does this you know, what does this feel like I should say? I would want to express something, but sometimes what I would want to express doesn't fit on what I did musically, so I'd have to do that for a different tune. Did, did any songs end up on the, um, well, not the cutting room floor, that's a film analogy, but I mean, was there any, yeah, anything? No, well, you... we use that same analogy. Yes. <laughs> Many. <laughs> Many. Look, I mean, I'll tell you, I'll break a little news. I have, I have so much multi-track stuff, like from my later career, not from the early career, that, that you know, long after I'm gone, they, they can, someone, if anyone wants to sift through it, they can make albums. A lot of stuff. The, um, the album covers, we've, we've touched on, you know, Max Zoom and... Child of the Novelty, Strange Universe, were they all um, uh, done with Ivan Schwartz? No. Ivan did Child, and he did Strange Universe. The others, the first uh, album cover, Maxum, is a picture of The Last Judgment. As in Michelangelo's Last Judgment? A painting by a, a painter called Hans Memling. Oh, not the fresco by Angelo, Michelangelo. Okay. No. But it's the last judgment, to, you know, it's like the judgment day. It's a picture of judgment day. I've been religious all my life. Like, well, all my later life, all my, my, my post-acid life. Hmm. <laughs> so I've always had these undertones in the music that I do. You're an or, um, Orthodox Christian? Yes, yes. How did you know that? I did my research, and uh, well, I, I'm, I was raised in the uh, United Church, and then I married a wonderful Greek girl, and I fell in love with her, and then I fell in love with uh, Orthodoxy. Um, oh, cool. So your, your dad's Italian, and your mother was Syrian? Syrian. 
Syrian. So that's the Antiochian Orthodox Church? Yes, exactly. Antiochian mm. Orthodox. Very good. You did do your research. I was going to say when I heard your first, your opening segment about me, I was going to say, geez, I should hire you to write my promo copy. <laughs> <laughs> um, the comparisons to Jimi Hendrix, I mentioned oh, earlier, I mean, most guitarists would... Yeah, I know, but but I also mentioned off the top that you know your that that came with a, such a heavy burden. Um, I would imagine because I mean, sure you like Jimi Hendrix, but you know you were you were doing psychedelic music. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was sort of you know be playing this uh, psychedelic music, so the comparison was just kind of an an easy one, almost kind of a lazy thing to do, don't you think? To me, oh, he's another right. Jimi Hendrix. It, it was it was all. That whole reincarnation story and all of that stuff, that this, this it was one writer that invented this. And, and it got picked up by magazines and other writers. They, no one would do any kind of research into it, and certainly no one would ever call me. And they had this crazy stuff about, you know, Frank went to the hospital and was visited by the spirit of Jimi Hendrix, and... And I say, how can that? I went to the hospital in 1968. Right. <laughs> Hendricks wasn't dead until September of 70. Right, right. I was well into playing by then. But here's, some, here's a really ironic story, if you want to talk about irony. Yes. When I was still a drummer and not yet a guitarist, earlier in the year of 68, Jimi Hendrix played Montreal at an arena called the Paul Sauvé Arena. And I went, because the opening act was the Soft Machine, and they were known for doing a 40-minute drum solo. And, of course, I liked Mitch Mitchell of the Jimi Hendrix Experience. So I saw the Soft Machine, and when Hendrix came out, I couldn't hear anything except noise from the guitar amplifier. So I couldn't hear the drums, I couldn't hear anything. So I said, oh, I'm leaving, and I left. <laughs> you walked out on Jimi Hendrix. I walked out on Jimi Hendrix. And I've always joked afterwards, it was almost like the guy said, I'll make sure you never forget my name, pal. Hmm. Because that name just followed me everywhere. And to the point where I was doing tongue-in-cheek songs about it. You know, like when right. I covered All Along the Watchtower, I covered All Along the Watchtower specifically because it was written by Bob Dylan. Because I knew the writers would have a field day with saying, oh, here he goes again with Jimi Hendrix. Mm. And I was supposed to snicker and say, no, it's not Hendrix, it's Dylan. You know, you, you pointed something out very interesting regarding Jimi Hendrix. And that is, you know, nobody, when Jimi Hendrix emerged, no one was saying, oh, he's doing Albert King. Right. And, and you hit it right on the head, Albert King. Right on the I mean, head. They could have, yeah, they could have made that comparison. They could have made that comparison. Yeah, even the tone. But Richie Havens uh, said something to me once when we spoke. I asked him about Hendrix because he knew Hendrix. And he was at Woodstock, of course. And he said to me something very interesting. I always thought was cool. He said, well, Jimmy didn't play the guitar. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, he played the amplifier. Mm -mm. <laughs> That kind of made a lot of sense. Well, yeah, I guess for anyone also in that era, 
you know, you're, you, you, you're with the, with pedals and the amplifier again, that comparison, it's an, it's an easy one and kind of a lazy one to make. Yeah. Um, did it, it is. did it hurt your career? Do you think? Yes. In, in, in one way it helped because it brought the curious in droves and they came in droves because of the curiosity. This kid this Canadian kid who, quote, and this is not me saying it, it's them saying it, who plays like Jimi Hendrix. Let's go see that kid. So in one way that helped because it, to the live concerts it brought out the droves. But did it hurt my career? It certainly did in the press. The press, I mean, absolutely hated us. It was, it was, it was so... You know, if there was going to be a, an article or a story, it was, there was going to be some kind of condemnation about, you know, ripping off Jimi Hendrix. So and, that and what about hurt the career? And it hurt at radio. Mm. In those days, radio was important to bands. Of course. And radio just wouldn't play my stuff. They'd play one or two tunes. That was it. And whenever they would, they'd usually play one of the cover tunes. And if you look through my career of all my albums, I only really ever covered only about four or five tunes out of all the albums. Right, right. With the right. exception of the live album, because when you're playing live, yeah, you cover stuff like Johnny B. Good or you cover stuff like King B because you're jamming and you're playing live. But if you look at the studio albums, what is there, two or three, two or three covers in all of the studio albums? There's, there's All Along the Watchtower, there's Norwegian Wood by the Beatles. Yes. And uh, Roadhouse Blues. I think I also put Mona on one of them. So, what about your colleagues when you were out on the road with... That I got, you know? Yeah, I'll say. I'll say. it's uh, It was so unfair. Um, your colleagues when you're out there playing live, uh, Aerosmith, ACDC... Um, how did you interact with them? Were they, were they kind of giving you the the gears about Jimi Hendrix, or were yeah. they giving you yeah. your due? Very few were friendly. Very few were friendly. When they became friendly was much, much later, when it became evident, hey, this guy must be honestly doing what he's doing because all he's getting is bad rap for it and he's not changing. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, Mahogany Rush albums from 10 albums on are still the same kind of stuff as they were from the beginning. Even the Agora, which is, you know, in the 2000s. Yes, so, yes. Yeah, they, a lot of them weren't very friendly. At first, and then eventually they would become friendly. How about Johnny Winter? I know you you did what thirty oh, forty shows Johnny with Johnny. Winter. Yeah, I loved him, and I was so afraid to talk to him. I did all these shows opening for him, and I was just too afraid to talk to the guy. I would pass him in the hallway and go, "Hi," <laughs> you know, like I I wish I would have gone, you know, had conversations with him, and then. What made my day one day is somebody showed me a film, well, a video, of Johnny Winter talking about me. And I was flabbergasted. And, of course, this was after he died. 
because he was shown the video after he died. That's too bad you didn't know before. It's too bad I didn't know before. Because I was, I would finish my set early and get off stage as fast as I could so that I could watch him. Um, you mentioned uh, live at the Agora Theater in in Cleveland, six hours. Um, actually, it was actually twelve or more. Plus, there was a night before as well. Wow. When you recorded that. Oh wow! When you down to six hours, but we played for twelve hours straight. That's remarkable. Um, that took you a long time to sort of piece all that together because there was something that went wrong with was it the recording of the drums yeah, or there, there was damage to the recording, digital damage to the drum tracks. So it took me forever to basically do what what amounted to forensic editing on the drum tracks. We had, there's tools today that could have accomplished that in, in a quarter of the time, but those tools didn't exist then, or at least they weren't as refined. So you had to go measure by measure? Yeah, exactly. Bar by bar, beat by beat, fix this, get a snare, get the tom, fix this up, fix that up, so that when you see it and you hear it now, it's so perfect, you, don't, you can't see that there was ever a problem. But it took me years to do. Well, that was recorded when? 2011, 2010? 2010. 2010. Well, 2011, yeah. It was like near New Year's of 2010. And then it took you how many years to clean it up? And then, I guess, a seven. few years, what? To get seven years. Seven years to clean it up and another three years to get the rights to use some of the material. Because not all of the material is my own. It's available on a C, there's CD, there's a Blu-ray DVD, it's and there's a, a is it a hundred? Yeah, yeah. Blu-ray DVD. It's available directly from us at mahoganyrush.net. And a hundred and eighty page uh, booklet as well. Well, there's a book. It's a book where a journalist writes the first half of the book, which is basically kind of like your intro. You know, it's all the history of of the band and stuff with pictures and all that. And then the second half of the book about 90 pages of it is my my own writing i wrote the second half of the book as a personal in a personal way mahoganyrush.net um at a certain point uh you just decided you didn't want to make records for for the big labels anymore what happened we did an album called juggernaut it was the last album that I did for Columbia, and I had, I had the option to do one more album. And basically, they, they really, I mean, they, I was at war with the record company from the year they signed me. It was like, it was a really bad relationship from the beginning. David Krebs was my manager, and he had all of his bands at Columbia, and he put me on, the, on Columbia. Really, it wasn't the place I should have been. There was other labels I should have been on. But to make a long story short, they screwed up so badly on Juggernaut that I refused to do my last album. I didn't pick up the option. And it was my option to pick up. And I walked away. I basically said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'll make albums myself. I may play to smaller crowds. I may not be part of the system anymore, but it's, I just don't want to be part of this. Uh, look, let's face it, 
Richard, I fought it from the time I was 16 years old. You'd had enough. In the end, in the end it turned out that I, you know, I'm not going to say I never should have signed because I wouldn't have had a career, but my original suspicions turned out to be correct. All right. We will uh, we'll take a time out here, Frank. We're approaching the top of the hour. We'll come back and talk some more about the remarkable musical odyssey of Frank Marino.